Well, good morning. Thank you so much for that lovely song. I love uh, it as well with my soul. Thank you, worship team. Now, today we are getting back into the book of Matthew. We are in chapter 8, and we are just starting this new section. Now, today as we begin this section, we are beginning the second major discourse of the five. Oops. There we go. We're, we're on. Oh, good. Good. I'm glad we're on. I need PowerPoint. Uh, this week I learned more about leprosy than I ever thought I would learn, as you'll, you'll find out. So I need a PowerPoint. So today we're going to be getting the second of the five major discourses in the book of Matthew. And as we do so, we're going to begin to witness the power of Jesus Christ to heal and to do miracles, which really prove his messianic credentials. Now today, as we look at the healing of the leper by Christ, we are going to learn just how unclean humanity really is before a holy God. But the good news is, is we're going to learn also that through faith alone, in Christ alone, anyone can be made clean. And that's really good news. I know when I was a young man, I wondered, could God even make me, who was so unclean, clean? And the, the good news is he can. That's what we're going to learn here today. Now, I want to begin by talking about the nine miracles that we're coming to in Matthew chapter 8 through 9. What Matthew does is he clusters the miracles in chapters 8 through 9. And so you'll see the vast majority of the miracles done in Christ's ministry in the book of Matthew in these chapters. Let me lay them out for you. The first one that we're going to be looking at today, Matthew 8, 1 through 4, Jesus cleanses the leper. Matthew 8, 5 through 13, he'll heal a Roman centurion. And then in Matthew 8, 14 through 17, Jesus will heal a woman, particularly Peter's mother-in-law. Now, notice I highlighted the first three. That's because these three healings, Jesus ironically begins by healing the outcast of society, whether it's the leper or the Roman centurion, the pagan, or even a woman. Remember, they didn't have status in the eyes of Israelite culture. That's where Jesus begins his miracles. Well, the next in Matthew eight twenty-three through 27, Jesus will calm the sea. And that's important because remember in the book of Job, Yahweh alone has the authority to tread down the waves of the sea. Jesus is proving he's Yahweh by having power over the sea. Then Matthew 8, 28 through 34, Jesus shows his power over the demonic realm. He heals a demon-possessed man. Matthew 9, 1 through 8, he heals the paralytic. Matthew 9, 18 through 26, he heals the synagogue official's daughter. Matthew 9, 27 to 31, he heals blind men. Matthew 9, 32 to 34, he heals the demon-possessed again. Now, when we get to verse 35 of Matthew 9, Jesus, or I should say Matthew, gives a summary of Jesus' ministry. Listen to what it says. It says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. That's the summary of this whole section. Why is that important? Because as Jesus does the miracles, he is showing himself to be the fulfillment of Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6. That when the Messiah would come on the scene of history, the blind would receive their sight, the lame would walk, the lepers would be cleansed, the deaf would hear, and the good news would be preached to the poor. What's so interesting is you look at all these miracles, they really do prove 
that Jesus of Nazareth is Israel's long-awaited Messiah, but sadly, it'll fall largely on deaf ears and blind eyes. The vast majority of those who see these things, they will never believe. The question for us is, what about us? Will we just stand amazed and never come to faith, or will we really truly believe that Jesus of Nazareth is exactly who he claimed to be, the very long-awaited Messiah. So as we pick it up here then in Matthew 8, verses 1 through 2, Jesus shows his messianic power to cleanse and heal even a leper. It says, When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, I want to pull up my pointer here and point out, first of all, Jesus comes down from the mountain. There's a change of location. Recall the mountain was significant because Jesus was depicted by Matthew as the second Moses. Where did Moses teach the people the old covenant? At the mountain, at Sinai. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, meets the people once again at the mountain. Now he comes down, and I think the implication is he's on the way to Galilee, to the cities of Galilee, And as he's in the countryside, because the leper was excluded from the cities, that's where he meets the leper. And as he's moving through the countryside, notice it says, large crowds followed him. Don't be deceived into thinking that this means the vast majority of people were trusting in Jesus. Last time in Matthew, I showed you the vast majority of the crowd stood amazed at Jesus' miracles and the power of his teaching, yet they wouldn't believe. That's the case. The vast majority of the crowds never do believe. Now, notice in verse 2, I want you to notice here the bold faith that the leper has as he approaches Jesus. Notice, first of all, the term leper. I, I learned more about leprosy this week than I've ever cared to learn. But I want to define it for you because it actually, I think, becomes important for our message here today. Now, what you have to realize is that leprosy today... Uh, that is being defined here in this passage is not the leprosy that we see out in the world today, more than likely. The the leprosy today is called Hansen's disease. That is not what's being described probably in the Old Testament or in the New. And I'll explain why it's important. But let me cite you the Baker Encyclopedia of Theology. This is a good summary of why we can't think that leprosy in the Bible is the same as Hansen's disease today. And this represents the majority of good scholars today. Listen to the Baker Encyclopedia. It says this, quote, The disease we call leprosy does not fit the description given in Leviticus. The white hairs referred to so frequently in these verses are not typical of leprosy and may be found in many skin diseases. A white patch of skin is not characteristic of leprosy, nor is the scalp ordinarily affected. Also, a 7 to 14 period day period is usually inadequate to observe changes in the disease. If modern leprosy is being described in these verses, it seems strange that the more obvious characteristics of the disease are not being mentioned, unquote. Dear ones, in the New Testament period, if leprosy that we know today as Hansen's disease was being referred to, they had a different term. The term that we actually have for elephantitis, that was the term that was used in Greek for the leprosy that we know today. That term for elephantitis is never used once in the New Testament. 
So the bottom line of all the research I did into leprosy is today in this passage, the leprosy we're, being, uh, we're looking at in the text probably has to do with skin conditions like psoriasis and eczema, things like that. The reason this matters is people who were excluded in the Old Testament era for the, their leprosy were not being excluded to protect the health of other Israelites, but rather the reputation of a holy and life-giving God. And think about these poor people who were declared to be leprous. Realize that those who were declared to be leprous, they were excluded from the temple, they were excluded from Israelite society, and their whole lives, unless they were healed, they had to cry out, Tameh, Tameh in Hebrew, which means unclean, unclean. That was their lot in life. And yet, notice the boldness of this man, this leper. He approaches Christ. Notice, first of all, he bowed down before him. Now, it is true that bowing down before someone didn't necessarily mean that you were treating them as God. In this status-oriented culture, sometimes people would bow down to those they deemed to be higher rank than themselves. So perhaps that's all the leper is doing. However, as you see what he says here and how it unfolds, I think he's demonstrating faith. Notice he also calls Jesus Lord. Again, in that culture, sometimes a teacher would be called kurios, Lord, or someone of rank to someone of lesser status or by someone of lesser status. So that in and of itself doesn't prove that the leper is trusting that Jesus is the Messiah. But add to that, he says, if you are willing. Now, that's very important because it was known in the Israelite culture that healing could only occur if it was the will of God. And this is instructive for all of us today. How many times have you been around people in Christendom that are part of the Word of Faith movement who will say that if you somehow pray that someone be healed and if it would be the will of God, and if you use those words, if it's the will of God, they rebuke you. Why? Because the Word of Faith movement claims that faith is a force that you are to exercise they won't say this outright, but as a little God yourself. And the idea is if you use the words, if it be God's will, they claim those are faith-destroying words. That's nonsense. That whole movement should be rebuked. Here we see again, if it's God's will, and here, yes, Jesus Christ is God, then the man is going to be healed. Let me show you, though, why I think this man does have saving faith in the Messiah. Notice he says, you can make me clean. The term can there in and of itself is fairly innocuous. It's the verb dunamai. The term dunamai is where we get in English our term for dynamite. So you could literally render it power or ability. If I was giving you the Eric Dalma version, I would translate it, you have the ability to make me clean. Now, why is that an implicit statement of faith in the deity of Christ? Because the average Israelite knew that God alone could heal leprosy. They knew that God alone could raise the dead and that God's power alone was therefore needed to heal leprosy. Leprosy was considered as difficult to heal as raising someone even from the dead. Let me prove that to you. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 7. 
2 Kings chapter 5, verse 7. Please turn your Bibles there. Now, the reason I want you to turn to 2 Kings 5, 7, let me set the stage for you. Here you have the leader of Syria, what is modern-day Syria. Back then it was called Aram. Aram's king has a star warrior named Naaman. Naaman is this great warrior who wins lots of battles for Aram. The problem is he has leprosy. And so the king of Aram wants this man to be healed. So he sends a note with Naaman, and he sends him to the people of Israel because he had heard probably of Elisha, the prophet's work, that there was healing in Israel. So I want you to think about this as, again, you turn to 2 Kings 5, 7. All of a sudden, the king of Israel gets this letter. He sees Naaman, and all of a sudden, he's got to heal him of leprosy. That's a tall order. Listen to what it says, 2 Kings 5, 7. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes. That's a sign of mourning. And said, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man? Of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking to quarrel against me. The king of Israel is reckoning this is impossible. Only God can heal leprosy. Therefore, the king of Aram must be wanting to pick a fight because he's asking me to do the impossible. Notice the key phrase there in 2 Kings 5, 5 7. Am I God? Am I God to kill or to make alive that I could cure leprosy? That's how the average Israelite, even in Jesus' day, understood leprosy. That that was something only God could heal. And yet this leper says, I know you can do it. You have the ability to make me clean. I think it's an implicit statement of faith. Now, as we proceed then in verses 3 through 4, we see that Jesus is both willing and able to cure even this leprosy. Notice it says, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Dear ones, I think it's very significant that Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Now, let me explain why. Remember, those looking on and seeing this, they would know the Old Testament by heart. And they knew that out of Leviticus 5.3, anyone who touched a leper would they themselves become unclean. And perhaps, by the way, that's one of the reasons the man asked, are you willing? Are you willing, Jesus, to risk becoming unclean by healing me? But what's very interesting is in the very next section of Matthew that we come to, where Jesus heals the Roman centurion, remember the servant, we find out that Jesus doesn't need to touch anyone to heal. In fact, there's no formula for healing. Sometimes he touches, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he just gives the word. Sometimes he uses spit. Sometimes he uses mud. He uses all different kinds. There's no formula for the healing of Jesus. He doesn't need to even be in the presence of another person to heal. 
Why is that important? Because that shows us all the more why Jesus deliberately touches the man. Because Jesus is God, and he is omniscient, and he is omnipotent. He knows that the moment that he touches this man, he does not become unclean, but the man becomes clean. The moment he touches this man... This man is healed, and therefore Jesus doesn't become unclean. It's only that that man becomes clean. That's the idea. That's what we see here in the Scripture. Now, notice he says, I am willing. It's also insightful here that Jesus doesn't say, God is willing. He says, I am willing. Why? Because he's God. And notice after that, he gives the command, be cleansed. Katharizo is the verb. Akatharizo means you've been made unclean. How many here have ever heard somebody say they had to do a cathartic cry? Many of you guys out there probably don't do that except during times of the Vikings losing in the playoffs or the Super Bowl four times. Well, catharsis has to do with a cleansing, right? So Jesus cleansed this man. And isn't it interesting? It didn't say merely that he was to be healed. It said that he was cleansed. What mattered more than the man's physical ailment was his former exclusion from the temple, the very religious life of Israel, and from society and the fellowship of the forgiven. That's what was the most important, and now he's been made clean. And notice it says in the text, immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus didn't put salve on him and say, you know, get back to me in a few months. Or he didn't have to allow the man's immune system to kick in to get rid of whatever this leprosy was. The moment he touched him, the man was made whole. Why? Because in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth, we have the God-man. The one who is truly God, who has the power over life and death, has the power to even cleanse leprosy. Now, notice after that, I think it's instructive what Jesus says to him. It's important. It says, Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. It's very interesting here is Jesus heals and then he tells the man, don't tell anybody. And some scholars refer to this as the messianic secret that all through the Gospels, you will often see Jesus heal, and then he will tell the person, by the way, don't say anything, keep it to yourself. And so there's a lot of debate as to why that is. I think there's three reasons why Jesus says not to tell anyone when he heals. Number one, remember last time in Matthew, I showed you that the miracles Jesus did were not going to be responded to in faith by the vast majority of people. So what's very interesting is the more miracles people become aware of, all that does is heap culpability upon them. That's why it says in certain areas in Matthew, Jesus would not do miracles there because they didn't believe. It wasn't that he couldn't do miracles. He was doing it out of kindness because the more miracles and the unbelief of a sinner means they're more culpable. Number two, the other reason I think Jesus tells them to say nothing is because Jesus must go to the cross in Jerusalem on the divine timetable, not the timetable of man. 
Jesus, if he has made king early, as it were, because, hey, here's a miracle worker. He can give us bread. He can heal us of our leprosy. He can take away of all of our problems. Let's make him king now. No, Jesus must go to the cross and suffer on his timetable, not made king on man's. The third reason, maybe very simply, the reason why he tells this man to tell no one is simply so that the man wouldn't dilly-dally, to put it in our vernacular, but that he would really obey the law, show himself to the priest, and present the offering that Moses commanded. Jesus wasn't violating the law. He was fulfilling the law. And notice the reason the man was to do this was a testimony to them. The term testimony there, marturion, can either be rendered witness or testimony. And you'll see it all the way through the Scriptures. What Jesus does, whether it's his miraculous teaching healings, subduing the sea, they are a testimony to the world and to the leadership of Israel of his messianic credentials. The the good news is that through these miraculous deeds, we can see that the Messiah has come onto the scene of history. The fact that these miraculous healings will be ignored and even attributed to the power of Satan... When we get to Matthew chapter 12, remember they'll say he casts out demons by the power of Beelzebul. That just shows how hard the heart is of the vast majority of those in Israel. Yes, Jesus' healings are good news. The Messiah is here. But there is an ominous note that Christ's own testimony will largely fall on deaf ears and blind eyes with the people of Israel. The question is, what about us? Do we look at the miracles of Jesus and just yawn and move on? Or do we come to faith in Christ? My prayer is that the vast majority of you have come to faith. Perhaps there are some listening here today, maybe today is your day, that you would see the miracles done by Christ and realize that the Jesus of Nazareth really is the long-awaited Messiah. Okay, now, let's come to some applications that I have for you. I have two of them for you this morning. Number one, we should understand the significance of being unclean before God. Dear ones, what I want to lay out for you is I don't think being unclean in the Old Testament meant that you were somehow just merely quarantined so that other Israelites wouldn't catch the disease that you have. What it was ultimately about was demonstrating that fallen humanity even in things that are part of normal life, would exclude us from a holy and perfect God. So take, for example, when a woman would have a child. Is it sinful to bear children? No. In fact, God commands it, be fruitful and multiply. But the blood and the things involved with it were still deficient from the holy perfection of the life-giving God. And therefore, they made you unclean. Normal aspects of life made human beings unclean with a holy God. Therefore, we need a Savior who can do what? Who can make us clean. And so that's the second point. We should know that Christ alone has the power to make anyone clean. That our sinful human failings and our fallen nature can be remedied through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Now, what I want to do here first is I want to lay out to you why I believe uncleanness in the Bible is ultimately about being separated from God. It's not about quarantines. The reason I think it's important that you and I understand 
that leprosy described in the Bible is not Hansen's disease or the leprosy that we see today. It's because many people, I think, falsely believe that the only reason the lepers were excluded from the assembly was to protect other Israelites from their disease. Again, they think of it just as a grand quarantine. But more likely, the leprosy that we saw in the scriptures would be consistent with conditions like eczema or psoriasis. By the way, I think I have eczema. I start flaking all over. Uh, My skin falls off. I'd be probably excluded as a leper if I were an Israelite. That's what I think it's important. Now, why is this important? Because what we have to have is a paradigm shift in our minds to realize being unclean was not about protecting others from disease, but protecting the reputation of a holy God. That anything that reflects death and decay is in some sense false advertising for the God of life. That was what was behind it. And again, it showed the desperate need that we have for a Savior. Think of it this way. Think about a woman, according to Leviticus chapter 15, if she had a normal menstrual cycle, that's certainly not sinful. She was declared unclean for seven days. Is it sinful to have a menstrual cycle? No. What about having children? That also made her unclean. Is it sinful to be fruitful and multiply? No. The idea, though, is that normal humanity is not compatible with a holy and righteous God. And so even normal affairs and actions of life, because we are fallen, means we are not compatible to be in the presence of the holy and life-giving God. Let me make a point about this idea of leprosy again. The term leprosy comes from lepros. It literally means scaly. Remember, the actual term for the leprosy that we know today is Hansen's disease. That was a term that we have for elephantitis. That term is never used in the New Testament. But lepros means scaly. Why would scaly be something that is incompatible with God? Because it reminds of death and disease. It reminds of that which is imperfect and therefore can't be in the presence of the God who is perfect. I think that that's the issue. In fact, let me give you some more evidence of that. Notice here in Leviticus 5.2. Leviticus 5.2 talks about unintentional sin, as it were, being unclean by things you didn't even know that you did at the time and that you still needed to give a sin offering because you were made unclean. Notice Leviticus 5.2. It says, or... If a person touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of an unclean of unclean cattle or a carcass of unclean swarming things, though it is hidden from him and he is unclean, then he will be guilty. Dear ones, think about it. Is it sinful to pick up a dead carcass? No. Is it sinful for a woman to have children? No. Are women who are having children, are they susceptible to spreading disease that's going to be contagious? Is that what it's about? You have to exclude yourself from the assembly so that other people don't catch the disease of bearing children? Obviously, being unclean was more than quarantine. It was about coming across things that misrepresented the very character of God. Think about this in Psalm 5.4. The psalmist says that all of us who have done evil shall never dwell with God. By the way, the verb there, shakan, 
is where we get our term for the Shekinah glory, the dwelling presence of God. We can never dwell with him. So what we have to learn is what uncleanness is about is teaching us as fallen sinners that we as sinners are fundamentally incompatible with a holy and righteous God. Think of this analogy. Let's say you have a neighborhood bonfire and you're standing around the bonfire and some goofball sticks his hand in the fire, gets burned, pulls his hand out, starts cursing the fire and kicking at it and yelling at it. Well, you'd think that the person's crazy because everyone knows that their hand is incompatible with fire. Yet fallen humanity is so sinful that we don't realize that we just in our normal everyday lives are incompatible with the holy and righteous God. That's why we all need a sinner, a savior who can secure cleanliness for us, the sinner. In Proverbs 20, verse 9, the Solomon asked this question. He says, who can say, I have cleansed my heart and I'm pure from my sin? The idea is that no one can. Only those who have come to faith in Jesus, the one who can make anyone clean. Now, let's look at the specific issue of leprosy. And again, what I'm claiming is that leprosy was, and the exclusion of the leper was not about quarantining. Leprosy wasn't Hansen's disease as we see it today. It was about misrepresentation of God's character. If you are scaly and you have skin that looks like death, you can't be amongst the God of life. I think that was the issue. Leviticus 13, 45 through 46. It says, As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn, and the hair of his head shall be uncovered, and shall, he shall cover his mustache and cry, There is Tamei, Tamei, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Brothers and sisters, think about this is exactly what the leper that Jesus cleansed was going through. First of all, his whole life, as soon as he had been diagnosed with leprosy, he had to cry out unclean. Notice he was excluded to live alone. That's why there ended up being leper colonies. But he also was excluded from the camp. That is the very religious life of the people of Israel. Again, why? Was it merely about quarantine, keeping others from a disease? No. It was about preventing those that had a condition that represented death from bringing misrepresentation of the God of life. I think that that was the issue. Let me give you an analogy that proves this. Remember in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is arguing with the Sadducees about the afterlife. And you remember that the Sadducees not only didn't believe in the resurrection, but they didn't believe in any form of life after death. Jesus becomes very angry with that. He says to them, you don't know the power of God nor the scriptures. He rebukes them. I think it's a very stern rebuke. But then what passage does Jesus point to to prove the afterlife? He cites a passage I think not a lot of us would think about. He cites Exodus 3, 6, where God confronts Moses at the burning bush. And remember in Exodus 3, 6, God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What Jesus does with that is he shows that the doctrine of the Sadducees 
is false advertising for God. If you don't believe in an afterlife, God, therefore, is the God merely of the dead. How can the life-giving God be presented by the Sadducees, those who were to know the law of Moses? How could those Sadducees take the God of life and say, well, he's just the God of three dead guys? That's false advertising for God. That's why Jesus is so incensed with it. And do you see then, if I have scales on my face, it may not be sin, but I can't be in the presence of the life-giving God. It is false advertising. Tough. You're out. And so difficult was it for the Israelites to be in the presence of God. Day after day, year after year, decade after decade, hundreds of years, they needed a Savior who could do what? Who could make them not just temporarily clean, but eternally clean. All of it was designed to point us to our need of Jesus. Didn't the Apostle Paul himself say at the end of Colossians 2 that the regulations and the sacrifices of the Old Testament were merely the, the shadow, which is skia in the Greek, literally the shadow, but the substance was Christ. All of the unclean talk was designed to point us to the one that we read about today in Matthew 8, 1 through 4, who can make you clean not just for a moment, but eternally clean. That's what the issue is ultimately about. Think about in the New Testament, this idea of being unclean really has to do with the idea of being found incompatible with the holy God and forever being excluded from the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem and being thrown in the lake of fire. In fact, listen to what it says in Revelation 21.8. It says the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The second death is for those who are unclean. And notice that's what we see in Revelation 21.27. This is about the new Jerusalem. Notice John says that nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Isn't it interesting that no one who is regarded as unclean shall ever dwell with God forever? And sadly, we all are in that state prior to coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Interestingly enough, an analogy you can make is when you think about unbelievers today, and for all ages, every unbeliever, when they don't come to faith in Jesus, it's as if they're treating Jesus as if he's something that's detestable and unclean because they won't come to him on his terms. But when they die and they breathe their last, God has the last laugh and says, no, it's you that is unclean. Be separated from me forevermore. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews 10.29. Hebrews 10.29. Please turn your Bibles there. I'll show you this idea that God doesn't take the mockery of his son. Those who won't come to faith in him are those who treat Jesus as being unclean. And there's going to be a great reversal. God will treat them as unclean who reject his son. Hebrews 10.29. Now, as you're turning to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, I want you to remember that here the writer of Hebrews is doing a lesser to greater argument. If those who rejected the lesser Mosaic covenant were guilty and fell in their sins and would perish, how much more 
those who reject the glories of the new covenant, namely Christ. Hebrews 10.29, the writer of Hebrews says, How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Not coming to faith in Jesus Christ during this life means you've insulted the Spirit of grace and you've declared unclean in your own assessment, the blood of Christ. What we see in Revelation twenty-one twenty-seven is the great reversal. When the kingdom comes, God says it's those who reject his son that are unclean, not the shed blood of Christ and his finished work. That's the idea. And so, dear ones, all of this is designed to show us we need a Savior. We need a Savior who can make anyone clean. I want you to think about in the religious life of Israel, so many of them would attempt to make themselves clean by rituals, by following regulations, by even obeying the Mosaic law, but it could never work. Why? Because as Isaiah said in Isaiah 64, 6, all of us are like that which is unclean. Even our righteous deeds are like what? Filthy rags. So what we needed... And what we do need today is a Savior who can make us clean, not merely on the outside through ritual, but one who can make us clean on the inside so that we start thinking differently and acting differently. That's what Jesus was able to do. Let me show you a passage where he addresses this. This is Jesus in the temple. And notice how he rebukes the religious leaders of Israel who should have known better. Matthew 23, 25 through 26, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Remember, they're play actors. For you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Stop there for just a moment. Notice, obviously, the cup and the dish are a metaphor here. It's a metaphor for the person. Jesus is really talking about the inside of the person. Notice they claim to do ritual washings on the outside, but inside of the scribes and the Pharisees, they're full of sin, robbery, and self-indulgence. Verse 26, he says, You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. What's unique about Jesus of the new covenant is that whereas the Old Testament rituals may make you clean for a moment, Jesus can cleanse your heart from the inside out and make you forever clean. And that is a radical difference between the new covenant, which is far greater than the old. Think about the moment you trust upon Jesus Christ, you are positionally made clean forever. The very moment you trust in Jesus, brought to faith by the power of the Spirit, you are positionally clean before God forevermore. You will be in his kingdom forever. But not only are you positionally clean, you become transformationally clean. That is, the moment you trust in Jesus, you're given the Holy Spirit, and by his power, he will help you to start thinking differently. You'll start thinking biblically. Then you'll start acting biblically. So you will transformationally be made clean as well. Again, from the inside out. And that's something only Jesus Christ can do. 
It's only by the shed blood of Christ that anyone could be made clean. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says here in Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. He says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Dear ones, first of all, notice that believers, notice he's talking about brethren, we are not excluded from the presence of God forevermore. Why? Because of the shed blood of Christ. Notice, notice it's the blood of Jesus that makes us clean. In fact, notice he says that we can be those who draw near. The term draw near there, pros erkamai, is a term that's used in the Septuagint of the Old Testament for the priest of God who drew near to him in the service of the temple. The moment you were brought to faith, Bob has talked a lot about this, you were made priests of God, priesthood of every believer, men and women who will be priests who serve their God forevermore. Then when you come to the blue, there's two perfect participles, and what they describe is how is it that we can draw near? Well, it's having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Both of those things describe describe former Old Testament rituals, but now they are true the moment you come to faith in Christ. And notice what is so shocking is having our hearts sprinkled clean. The Old Testament sacrifices, the Old Testament rituals, the washings, they could never do that. That was the promise reserved for Christ and the new covenant. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Ezekiel 36.25. Ezekiel 36.25. I want you to see that the great promise of the new covenant is that even our hearts would be made clean, something that the old covenant could never do. Ezekiel 36.25. By the way, the backdrop to John chapter 3, Bob has been teaching that very Wonderfully, and I know he has talked about this Ezekiel thirty six twenty five. That's the backdrop that Jesus is talking about when he says, Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's Ezekiel thirty six twenty five, which is the backdrop to that. Ezekiel thirty six twenty five, this is the promise of the new covenant. He says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. All of that is fulfilled, not in regulations, not in animals, not in ceremonial washings, not in trying harder, not by becoming spiritual, finding a new religion, try harder, do more, do better. It's not found in any of that. It's found through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. The moment you trust in him, you've been made clean forever. That's the good news of the new covenant. I know when I was a young man, so sinful did I know myself to be, I thought no one could ever make me clean. And the good news that I learned from the gospel is that God could make me clean. Perhaps there are some here today or some that are listening via the internet or watching, and you really despair as to whether or not this Christ could ever make you clean. Oh, yes, he has the power to make the others clean, but not me. I'm so bad. Let me give you an analogy, an illustration Many of you in here have been to the land of Israel on a trip. And I mentioned this in Sunday school. When you go to Israel on your trip, I was there 
with my wife in 2008, you're very blessed to have these, these bus drivers who are trained by the state of Israel, and they're very knowledgeable about history. And I'll never forget this bus driver that we had. He brought us to the Mount of Olives, and we're looking at the eastern gate. This is the very gate that Jesus came through called the Golden Gate, I believe, during his triumphal entry, what I like to call Lamb Selection Day. Well, what's interesting, let me read you a little bit of the history of the Eastern Gate because there's a lot of history in it. In 810 A.D., the Muslims sealed it over. Why? Because they didn't want the Christian and Israelite Messiah to come in through it. Well, the Crusaders in 1102, the Christian Crusaders, they reopened it, said, oh, yeah, we're going to open it for Christ. Well, then again, in 1137, the Egyptian Sultan Saladin, he closed it again only to be reopened again by some Christian crusader. Well, then finally in 1530, the Ottoman ruler Solomon shut it and sealed it again. And then the Muslims did the, the grand finale. They said, we know a way that we can keep the Messiah ever coming in through that eastern gate. We're not just going to seal it. We're going to plant a graveyard there. And they buried their dead. Do you know why they did that? Because what they reckoned is the Messiah of Israel would never go through a graveyard lest he be made unclean. What did we learn today when Jesus stretched out his hand to heal the leper? Did Jesus risk becoming unclean? No, the moment he touched him, he made the man clean. It is not possible for one sinner one element in all of the cosmos to ever make Christ unclean. He alone has the power to make everyone clean. No matter how bad you are, no matter what you've done, Jesus has the power to make you clean. That's the great promise that we see in the scriptures. Jesus is exactly who the Bible says he is. He's God. He's man. He lived the perfect life that none of us could so that by faith in him, his righteousness could be credited to our account. Jesus didn't simply come to live the perfect life. He died a substitutionary death. Jesus the just on behalf of us, the unjust, in order that we might be brought to God. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The proof that Jesus died for our sins, removed forever the wrath of God and our uncleanliness, was proven by the fact that on the third day after his death, he was bodily raised from the dead. This resurrection proves all of Jesus' claims. When Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but by him, we can believe it why he was raised from the dead. Jesus ascended into the heavens, seated at the right hand of God from where he's coming again to bring a glorious kingdom for his people, but wrath and judgment upon his enemies. What must we do? Jesus commands every person to repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is turning from sin, self, and the world, turning from idolatry, coming to God on his terms, which is faith alone and Jesus Christ alone. Today, if you have not trusted in Jesus, today is your day. Trust in him because he can make anyone clean. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that through the terms of the new covenant, the shed blood of your son, we can all be made clean and forevermore have access to your throne, that we can always be in your presence, 
and your glorious kingdom, whether it be on earth or in heaven. We thank you for these truths. We do pray, Heavenly Father, for those that are steeped in other religions, our family, friends, co-workers. We pray, Heavenly Father, for Jewish neighbors who still cling to the old covenant. We pray, Lord, you give us bold opportunity to confront them with the glories of Christ and how they can be made clean. We pray for our, our loved ones, our family, our friends. We pray that you'd give us ample opportunity to witness to them. We pray that you'd regenerate them. We pray for their salvation, that they also, too, would become clean. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.